Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All in one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 22 of Clear and Vivid. I'm here with my executive producer, Graham Shedd. Hi, Graham. Hi there. Good morning. We open the season next week with actor, singer, writer, comedian Robert Klein. Robert has had a long and extremely successful career. His style of observational comedy made him a huge hit. Among others, Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld have said he was an influence on their work. I met Robert when he was just starting out as a comedian. We were both in the same musical on Broadway, and after the show on weekends, other members of the cast and I would go down the street from the theater we were playing in to watch Robert try out his act at a comedy club. Before long, he was hosting the first-ever HBO comedy special and helping launch Saturday Night Live. It interested me that as he was starting out, he had as a mentor someone who I found surprising, Rodney Dangerfield. Dangerfield had a completely different personality as a performer. His signature line and the premise of a lot of his jokes was, I don't get no respect, whereas whereas Robert Klein was a little more cerebral. But it turned out it wasn't the style he learned from Dangerfield. It was the dedication to the hard work of crafting something funny. I'm interested in Rodney Dangerfield being your mentor because he was so vastly different in style and personality from the personality, the persona that you presented on stage. In what way was he your mentor? Well, after he praised me to the sky, and I had never met the man. He said, now you have to come for three years every night to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> what happened is I followed him around. Um, he was 20 years exactly older than I. I'm 81. He would have been 101 now. And um, I learned basic things. Who's in the audience? Who's paying you? Uh, how to handle the mic? Also a very important thing. Up to that time, not many comedians wrote their own material. They had writers. And he was a primary uh, joke writer. And for a man with uh, lacking certain disciplines in his personal life, drinking too much and too much indulgence and this and that, when he had a Tonight Show to do, he would start two or three months earlier and start writing the jokes and put them on a shirt cardboard. Mm. that you get from the laundry. Yeah. And so I learned preparation from him, um, the style, uh, my own style, which he, I, I wouldn't copy his. He called me the next dimension because I was, I went to the Yale drama school and he graduated high school. He was an amazingly intelligent person. And he was, uh, he, he became an icon late in life. Did he give you tips on constructing a joke? Yes. 
you, you you don't you try it out. If it doesn't work, you don't give up on it. There there might be something in it. If you think it's funny, you reconstruct it, try it again, and you have to have a certain amount of patience, and you have to do it a lot. You have to you you can't just lay off and forget about it. It's got to be your passion. A clear and vivid guest who certainly has passion is the writer Elizabeth Rush. She writes mostly about climate change, but she does it in a way that's very different from the usual scary headlines. In fact, she wrote a Pulitzer Prize finalist a few years ago on the impact of sea level rise on the people already being affected along the East Coast, mostly just using the words of the people themselves. Her new book, called The Quickening, is a wonderful account of her journey on a research vessel going to Antarctica to investigate the state of a glacier, often called the Doomsday Glacier, because its breakup could lead to catastrophic sea level rise. But the book is also a portrait of the people on board the ship and what it's like to travel through huge seas one moment and ice that threatens to trap the ship the next, before finally arriving at the glacier. Its real name, by the way, is the Thwaites Glacier. So you traveled this long distance to get to Thwaites itself. Hmm. What was it like when you first saw it or you first stepped on it? We didn't ever step on it. Uh, Yeah, I'm just just realizing that would be kind of hard. I was sort of disappointed. I was like, I never even touched it. We went all that way and I got, you know, within literally a hundred feet of it, but I never fully touched it. I remember, you know, the morning that we knew we would arrive, I woke up super early. I was like a kid on Christmas and I ran up to the bridge, which is, you know, the place where the captain and the mate steer the boat and it has like windows on all sides and... A good handful of my shipmates were up there already, and everyone was just, it was like we were in a, like a cathedral staring at this otherworldly form that some folks on that bridge had been literally trying to get to for decades. Mm. Um, you know, I'd been interested in it for years, but there are people who've devoted their entire lives to this glacier. Um, and to have it finally come into view was really just sort of gobsmacking. And at the same time, I had no reference point for what I was looking at. Like I'd never seen an ice shelf before. So for me, it was, you know, everything about it was novel. And so I definitely started to interview people on that morning who'd been around more ice shelves and who maybe had expectations around what the weights would look like. And many people described the glacier on that first morning as looking sick or gnarly, um, that it was full of sort of like strange crevassing and slumping. So I think there was this So, so did that mean it was probably more unstable than they expected? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was definitely more unstable looking and strange looking than they, than they expected. And so I remember feeling like my heart was being pulled in sort of two directions at the same time, like incredible awe and incredible grief to realize that like this thing that literally has taken me a month to get to, it's the farthest I've ever traveled in my entire life, is being forced into strange shapes by human activity so far away from it. 
Elizabeth not only writes about what's going on, but she also joins in some of the research trying to help out. And, and there's an awful moment when that went terribly wrong. She was carrying a mud core, just the second one they'd ever retrieved from the ocean floor, and she dropped it. She said it's one of the worst experiences of her life. And what made it even worse is it was a core that one of the young women working on the boat was going to use for her dissertation. It all works out in the end, but uh, it was a scary moment for her. But the book is not just about the visit to the Thwaites. It's also about her grappling with the very personal issue of whether it's okay to become a mother at a time when the earth is threatened by climate change. Next up is a neuroscientist we both met about a dozen years ago when we were making the PBS series Brains on Trial. Nancy Kanwisher put you into an MRI machine to show you how it can be used to image parts of the brain that specialize in responding to things we see, like bodies and places and words. You wanted to catch up on her work on a part of the brain that's of personal interest to you. It certainly is. So the thing, the thing that I am especially interested in your special areas is that you figured out this special area devoted to recognizing faces. And that's my problem, is I have face blindness. Uh-huh. Have you been tested? Not by anybody official, but I've been tested by life. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't recognize my own daughter twice. Wow. The good news is we and others have shown uh, that face recognition ability is completely uncorrelated with IQ. So <laughs> It's too late to tell me that. So don't worry. And the thing is, you know, your face recognition system, it's just a special part of your brain. It's not all that related to how the rest of the brain works. And so if that bit isn't working well, so what? It's just one little piece, not related and, uh, to everything else. Apparently, I'm not the only one. Absolutely. It's, it's a surprising percentage of the population. Is it 10%? Well, it depends on your threshold, but the bottom 2% of people is really, really bad. Uh, uh, like you said, failing to recognize family members. When we watch a movie together, I have to say to my wife, have we seen this character before? And she'll I, say, yeah, it's the star of the show. I have so been there. I, I don't know if I'm quite as bad as you, Ellen, but so I'm So you have it bad. too? You have it I'm, too? I'm pretty bad, and my partner has to talk me through movies as well. No yeah. kidding. You know, I, I chat GPT told me that you have face blindness. Oh, is that right? It, yeah. And, I, and uh, I thought it was maybe hallucinating because it tried to cover its tracks by saying not many people know this. It's <laughs> <That's> so funny. <laughs> well, you know, it's actually weird. I, I haven't actually taken the official bona fide test to be certified, and I'm not sure how bad I am, but I'm definitely on the low end of the spectrum. I'm, I'm not good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the worst. I, I've seen descriptions of really, really unfortunate cases. And, and Alan, I'm sure you know that, that the other end of the spectrum is really interesting, too. Do you know yes, about super-recognizers? Yeah. Super-recognizers. The, the, the cabbies in London seem to have that. Right. and or Many of them do, anyway. Right. And the interesting thing is, if you're that good, people who are that good actually routinely have to conceal it. Because oh, otherwise, it, it creeps people out. Like if I said, if you weren't Alan Alda, if you were just like a regular person and I said to you, you know, I was standing behind you in line waiting to get movie tickets four years ago, you would turn around and say, get away from me. Who are you? 
Nancy Camwich's latest discoveries that she talks about are even odder and more tantalising. She thinks she's found a brain region that responds just to the sight of food. <laughs> the thing is, it doesn't matter whether that food's a steak or a cauliflower or a mango. A part of the brain lights up at just the sight of it. And there's another region that responds only to music. And it can be music as different as Mozart or heavy metal. So while Nancy Kainwicher is finding out how our brains get things right, Adam Mastroianni, who is a researcher at Columbia Business School, is interested in why we're always getting things wrong about our social environment, the, the, the people around us. For instance, you might think you'd be happier if you were just a little smarter. Wrong, according to Adam. And how about the right time to wind up a conversation? We're usually way off there. And then there's a study that got him into the New York Times. How most of us, most of the time, seem to think that things are always going from bad to worse. Here's Adam. So we asked people, how kind, honest, nice and good are people today? And then what about at various points in the past, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the year in which you were 20, the year in which you were born? And over and over again, people tell us people are less good today than they used to be. They're less kind, they're less nice, less honest, they're less ethical, they're less moral. Overall morality has declined. They believe this in every single country where they've been asked the question. Uh, they believe this uh, for about a generation, the earliest data that we have. Uh, they believe it's still happening today, so they think that people are less good today than they were even four years ago. And they think it's driven both by individuals getting worse over time, so the same person is worse today than they were 15 years ago, but also we lost good people and we gained bad people. So there's also like a generational effect. So are they mad mainly at young people or what? It's both. So they both think that the young people that we have today aren't as good as the old people that we lost, but they also think that everybody is worse today than they were 15 years ago. Even the, you know, the people who were there 15 years ago and are still there today, they think those people are also worse. Um, so this isn't just like a kids these days phenomenon. This is like an everybody these days phenomenon. Uh, it's interesting. You remind me right this minute of a quote I came across a few years ago of an ancient Greek who said the same thing. Things, things are <laughs> rotten now. Yeah, you could find these go to back a long time. In, in the paper we wrote, we have a quote from uh, Livy in ancient Rome you know, saying uh, th things have all gone to hell, basically. Uh, the people aren't what they used to be. And, you know, we don't have survey data going back thousands of years, but you can certainly find people saying sa these th same things throughout all of history, which also suggests that maybe they aren't all saying these things because they've been right, but because this is actually what it feels like to be alive. It's an interesting subject that you've studied here, and I wonder what conclusions you draw from it. Is it holding us back from something as a species or as a society? What can we draw from it? Yeah. So, so I mean, one important thing that we find is that the, uh, there's pretty good evidence against what people believe here, that they, they think that people are less good than they used to be. So we look at all these survey measures um, where people are asked things like, were you treated with respect all day yesterday? And if it's true that people are less good today than they were 20 years ago, you should see fewer people saying yes today than they were before. You should see a steady decrease in the percentage of people who say they were treated with respect all day yesterday or a million other questions that, that we, we studied. And instead, we see these flat lines um, that these don't change over time. And I think what we should take away from that is that it's so easy to feel like things are getting worse. Um, 
But it's actually a very difficult question to answer whether they are or not. I mean, it took us five years even to have a halfway decent answer. And in this case, the answer seems to be things are actually the same on all these measures. And so uh, often the way people feel when, when they when they feel like things are getting worse, they feel like some switch has been flipped in society. Something's gone wrong and we need to fix it. We need to turn things around. But in this case, that negative trend that people perceive, it isn't there. And so whatever you would do to turn it around isn't going to do anything because it didn't do anything in the first place. It's like turning on the sprinkler system in a building that's not on fire. You're, you're just going to make everybody <laughs> wet and you're not going to help anything. One of the things that interests me about Adam is that not only is he a social psychologist, a teacher, and a successful blogger, he's also a professional improviser. He works in front of an audience every week as a member of an improv comedy group. And all that improvising is one reason I think he's such a good communicator. Someone else I talk with this season about an aspect of communication is Joseph Henrik. He's examined how societies prosper, and he's found out that an important element is the connectedness of the people in that society. And not just the connectedness of people to people who are like them, but also connecting with people who seem alien. Using innovation as a sign that a society is prospering, he's looked up the number of patents for inventions that have been taken out in years when large numbers of immigrants were coming into this country. And he's compared that to when they were not allowed in. The results were surprising. Yeah, um, so there's a lot of fascinating research coming mostly out of economics on this. So in, in our lab, what we did is we, we said, well, we think that a good way to capture slices of culture is to look at surnames. So we got data from the U.S. Census, and we calculated the diverse, diversity of different surnames in every county in the U.S. for basically the entire history of the U.S., and what we can show is that counties that had greater diversity as measured by number of different families as captured by surnames leads to faster innovation. So more patents per capita, more breakthrough patents per capita. And there's various ways we could show because we have temporal data where we can use the, the uh, surnames in one decade to predict the coming decade of patents and various other statistical tricks to show that this relationship is causal. One of the interesting uh, things that happens uh, in this research is that you can look at the immigration quotas that were put in in um, 1924. There was a big push to restore the ethnic diversity of the U.S. back to the 1890 census. So a uh, decision was made by Congress and signed by President Coolidge to sort of shut down immigration from Italy and, and Eastern Europe. And this, uh, so this ended, essentially ended immigration from a lot of these places. And then you see a sudden decline in the patenting in the U.S. in those, in the domains where those immigrants had previously been patenting in. You know, people bring expertise depending on where they're coming from. Uh, and one of the, my favorite part of the story is that the native-born Americans actually get less innovative too. And this is something that recurs through this uh, literature is that when people come in from diverse places with different ideas, not only are they good at generating novelty and, and innovations and stuff, but they make the people already living there better at those things too. Don't forget to join us next week when we begin the season with Robert Klein. See you then. <laughs>